You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. series today called November. We've spent this month, we've hit pause on our walk through the Gospel of Mark. We've been talking about the reality that in the kingdom of God, according to scripture, there are no spectator Christians, there are no second string Christians. We are all called to actively engage in the work of God in this cursed and broken world. And so we talked about how how your pastors, how me specifically, how we are praying that God would move our church to action, that he would raise up in this room pastors and missionaries and theologians and adopted parents and foster parents and social workers and community activists and those who love hurting family members and mentally ill and sick those stuck in nursing homes, that God would move us to act for the kingdom. That is something I've been, I've just been wrecked over that. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to attack you guys. I know, I know that you are, we are a people who, and we love each other and we love Jesus. And this is not me trying to, this is not me spending a month saying, shame on you to register your church, I promise. But man, I just, just pray that God would move us to action. That God would, would make us the people who, who engage this world and engage this community in such a radically generous and loving in Jesus way that it just affects everyone in touch. Now John Piper famously said that uh, the, the Western church's problem is that it considers itself to be at peacetime when in reality it is wartime. That the kingdom is actively taking ground away from the curse and away from Satan. I love the way the theologian Gregory Boyd expounded on that. He said that the Western church, the church in general, is not just in wartime, spiritually speaking, but, but rather than thinking of yourself as a Christian as, as part of some army on a battlefield, you should think of yourself as the citizen who is trapped in an occupied country. And he, he brings to mind the images of, of European resistance fighters in, in World War II who sought to undermine and destroy the Nazi regime from within conquered lands. And he says, in that world, there is no such thing as a neutral observer. You are either fighting for the resistance or you are complicit. There's something stirring in that, right? Those are sharp words to think about the church's stance in a broken and cursed world that, that, that you are either actively part of the work that is dismantling the power and authority of Satan in this cursed and broken world, or you are complicit in it. That's a, it's sharp. But it's worth thinking about. It's worth dwelling on that as, as we live in the wealthiest, most comfortable, most religiously free, most religiously and theologically protected people group in human history. 
as we sit in our church and think about the totality of our brothers and sisters in the world right now and throughout church history and realize we have more access to the truth of the gospel, to the treasure of theological study, and to religiously protected social status than any other of our brothers and sisters in the entire world and throughout all of church history. It is worth considering our role in the work of the kingdom. Amen? So we're going to be in Luke chapter 7 today. If you want to go ahead and turn there. Um, where we're jumping to, to several different books and passages throughout the study. Um, as you're turning there, this is this is kind of just an announcement thing, but it, it's actually really connects to what we're talking about. I want to I want to put this out there. You guys know that a lot of people at Red Tree go out and serve at churches in the streets, at a homeless charity ministry here in St. Louis. There's GCs that go and individuals and groups that go throughout the month. I got I got to go with a couple guys this last Thursday night. It was really cool. I just want to encourage you guys to actively be in prayer of that ministry. They've had a really discouraging summit. They've had really low donations and really low volunteers. And when we were there Thursday, they were they were actually considering not having the meeting that Thursday night or lowering it down to just the meal because they were so short on, on volunteers and on donations. They didn't have anything except like t-shirts and socks to give away. And so I would encourage you guys to do a couple things, to be, and be praying over that work and praying over that ministry. Churches in the streets, when it comes down to it, it it's just a gospel proclamation and charity ministry, but you're talking about really like six families that have dedicated their lives to being in essentially the most dangerous parts of our city twice <laughs> a week, every week, all year long, rain, sleep, or shine. And so be praying over them, praying for encouragement of the spirit on those families and the work they do, and and also, church, I would just, and I would challenge us. You know, we had a donation bin out there in the lobby, and I think I think there's several of us here that could just make a decision to say, when we make our bi-monthly Walmart run, we can grab an extra pair of jeans or an extra thing of boxers, or we can grab some canned tuna with a full tab, and we can just put that in our grocery budget. I think there's probably three or four of us that could do that. I know that's me. That's my family. And that's something I just need to commit to do. And so I would encourage you guys in prayer over that ministry, think about how and you can go down into the city and serve and how you can be a part of continuing that work. I really, I say this a lot in my GC, but man, charity is the, is the bare minimum of how the church engages in, in work with those who are impoverished and hurting. It's not the solution, but it's the absolute bare minimum. We can all, we can all be charitable people. So, we're in Luke chapter 7. We're going to be starting... In verse 36, uh, and I'm going to read the text, and then, I'll, and then I'll give us a little bit of context here. This is starting in the, the 36th verse of the 7th chapter of the Gospel for Luke. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him, him being Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with 
the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I, I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, <laughs> for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And this is the word of the Lord. Now, before we jump into this, let me put our series in context and then put our text in context. If you recall, we've been, we've been doing this series. Right? What, is it, what does it mean for the church to be engaged in the work of the kingdom? So the very first week we talked about the, the biblical truth that the worship of God, that is the internal treasuring or enjoyment of God as God, is the fuel for all kingdom work and all missional engagement, that the thing that actually pushes believers to engage the world and love and serve others is the reality that Jesus is so good that the gospel he offers is so enjoyable that we actually begin to treasure it above the things of the world. And we say with actual conviction things like, give me a heart abandoned gold and silver, you can take it. Because we enjoy Jesus with such a true satisfaction that we genuinely desire him more than the world. But this kind of biblical worship, worship that Jesus calls of spirit and of truth. This is the fuel for the work of the kingdom. And if we do not start from a place that Jesus is in and of himself totally enjoyable and, and treasurable, then we miss the entire work of the kingdom. And anything we talk about is essentially just duty or guilt. And it won't actually engage what God is doing. And then we talked about Last week, how we moved from this idea of the worship of God as fuel, we started talking about the idea of, man, the reality, the reason why God is so enjoyable, why he's so amazing, is that he has this insane, ununderstandable love for his people. And the love that God has for his people is fueled by his image stamped in them as their creator. 
We talked about how God as creator and God as the giver of the image, the imago Dei, the image of God, the likeness of God within humanity becomes this fuel for Christ's sacrificial, amazing, passionate love for his people. And because he loves with such passion, we can say with total integrity and not through a space of religiosity that he actually is that enjoyable. But he actually is a treasure. Because when we experience his radical, amazing love that pursues us relentlessly and, and sees through the sin and muck and disgustingness of our sin and our brokenness and actually sees us as his precious sons and daughters, as his creatures made in his image, then that experience is so thoroughly engaging of our soul that he actually becomes our treasure. It's not something we force ourselves to say or pray or sing as some kind of ideal, but it's actually what we experience. So today, we're moving from this idea of, man, remember, the enjoyment of God, treasuring God, this is the fuel of engagement in the kingdom. It's the fuel because God loves us so amazingly. God loves us so amazingly because he's our creator. His image is stamped in us. And today we're going to talk about how we move from that reality of how God loves us so insanely to how we as the church engage the rest of this broken curse world. So we're moving our focus, our attention from how God views you, engages you, and how you experience him to how now you, as his adopted son, and his adopted daughter, how you engage the broken curse world around you. Does that make sense? So we're in Luke. And let me tell you a couple things about Luke, because we haven't studied Luke a lot in our Sunday morning gathering. Luke is one of the four Gospels, and there are two things that set Luke apart as unique amongst the rest of the four Gospels that will be important for us today. The first one is that Luke is the only Gospel that's really written as an ancient history. Most are the other three Gospels are written in a genre we call bios, which is kind of like the great-great-grandfather of a biography. It's not like a modern biography, but it's similar. And Luke is written as an ancient history. Again, not like a modern history where the most important thing is essentially disinterested observation. That's not why people wrote histories in this day, but Luke is written genre-wise closer to a history than it is a bios. There's a couple of reasons for that, but the reason it's important for us to know is this. The fuel or the, the, the driving force behind the history in this day was not dispassionate presentation of facts. People didn't write histories because they had a PhD in history. They wrote histories because they experienced something that moved them so much they thought, this needs to be preserved. And so history writers of this day were unabashedly biased by modern historical standards. Luke wrote this book because he was crazy about Jesus. Because he experienced the life and power of the gospel and thought, this needs to be preserved. This needs to be written down and recorded so it can be told to more and more people. And so when Luke records, and Luke uses more sources than most of the gospel writers, he, and he even says to himself that he went and gathered data and interviewed people and put together this book. He uses a lot of sources, and he chose and put together the stories he did because he was so passionate about people actually hearing about this man Jesus and the work he did. 
And so when you read stories in Luke, it's, it's beautiful to kind of understand this history because essentially you have this brother in Christ standing over your shoulder going, this one's important, read this one. This one's good, you're going to love this one. And so Luke is passionate about the story. He provides this for us. The other thing about Luke that is unique is that Luke, if we would say like, oh, Mark, Mark is the gospel to the persecuted church, right? We talk about that a lot on Sunday mornings. Or Matthew is the gospel to the Jewish church, right? Like he gives a lot of a lot of like uh, Jewish proofs and proof texts from the Old Testament. We would say Luke is the gospel to the marginalized. Luke tells his story from a perspective that essentially highlights Jesus' engagement of marginalized, hurting people. Luke spends more time talking about racial minorities, the impoverished, and women than any other gospel writer. He singles out people that would have been cast aside by the majority culture, and he tells the story of Jesus from a perspective that includes, loves, honors, and dignifies those forgotten people. And so we we need to know that going into that, is that's kind of the chip Luke has on his shoulder. And we even see that in this text. It's so interesting. And it's dumb that I have to explain what I'm about to explain, but it's not you guys' fault. It's the world we live in. I I hope and I pray that that you guys actually study these texts on your own and that we, we leave these meetings and you guys spend time in your personal devotion digging into the text we talk about. And if you study Luke 7, you'll find really quickly that a lot of theologians debate whether or not this story actually happened. And the reason is because it's really, really similar to another story that's often told in Jesus' life. And in the other three Gospels, that other story is told right near the end of his life before his arrest. And Luke doesn't really include that. And none of the other Gospels include this story. And it happens near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And Luke's the only one that includes it. And so a lot of, a lot of historians or theologians say, oh, okay, Luke probably just got a distorted version of this story and he included it here. But that's not actually how it went down. And I just want to say really quick, that's really an unnecessary interpretive leap. And it's really just unfortunate. And it actually disregards what's powerful about both of those stories. It actually dismisses a lot of the authority and power of Scripture. And so I just want to say, we're not operating from that perspective interpretationally. <clears throat> For whatever reason, as Luke went source by source, he, he engaged and he, and he encountered this specific story of Jesus. <clears throat> one that he deemed just as historically accurate and authoritative as the other ones he chose to include. And I think directed by the Holy Spirit, he included this fully truthful story of Jesus' ministry and life. And there are things about it that are really similar to another story in Jesus' life where he's anointed uh, before his death, but there are so many things that are dissimilar that it, it disregards the entire point and power of both stories. To try and them. So we're going to look at this as the text chooses to present it. And we're going to trust the Holy Spirit, we're going to trust his inspiration of the Word, and we're going to engage the story. And I think in doing that, God is going to meet us in a powerful way so let me do this. Let me pray for us. Really quick, pray for the Holy Spirit. And then we'll talk about a couple things in this. Jesus, we need you to illuminate your text to us. Holy Spirit, we need you to speak to us. And illuminate the truth of your text to us. 
cut our hearts when we are sinful and dumb. Encourage us when we are falling at your feet. And Jesus, call us closer to you. We love you. We trust you for this. We pray in your name. Amen. So here's the story in a nutshell. Jesus goes to a party at a Pharisee's house. While he's at the party, a sinful woman shows up and makes a scene and essentially washes his feet. And the Pharisee judges the woman and judges Jesus. And Jesus calls out the Pharisee and blesses the woman. And that's the story. Do you follow? I want to point out a couple of pieces here that are going to illuminate this for us, I think. And I think we'll, we'll see, I think, hopefully without much direction, what God is trying to speak to us today. The first thing we need to get is this. Simon is wealthy. And that's made obvious by a couple things that we might glance over. The, the biggest thing is, Simon is having a public uh, dinner party. And this was a common thing in this day. People would essentially host public meal parties in an open courtyard in front of their house. And as these, these people would gather with famous or intelligent people, and they would have their meal, they would discuss important political or theological topics, the people from the town would essentially gather into this courtyard to observe the party. They would listen to the conversation, they would take notes and learn, they would snag leftovers as, as waiters and servants came and took away dishes. It was a way for impoverished people in the community to get food, and it was a way for uh, working class people in the community essentially to get news and entertainment. It was an established thing. So Jesus goes to this party, which says a couple things about Simon. He thinks Jesus is a rabbi who is at least interesting enough to invite to his party. He thinks the conversation will be stimulating enough that it will be entertaining for him and for uh, the observers. And so Jesus is invited to this party. Now the thing we, we really miss, and this is actually kind of important to get us to understand the scene here, is the way... The way people ate at these parties is not the way we eat today. So I need you to imagine this dining room-sized table, but it's a little shorter than your coffee table, right? It's, it's, about, it's about this far off the ground. And everyone, all the guests, are laying on pillows on their left side, propped up on their left elbow, eating with their right hand while they talk. <laughs> laying on the ground with their feet like sprawled out behind them. Essentially, if you were looking at the table from above, you'd get this weird like sparkler star thing with everyone's legs flopped out to the edge of the room. It's a weird picture. Add into that like another 30, 40 people standing around the edge, listening to these people laying on the ground eating, and it's just a weird scene, right? Culturally for us, that's like, that's so uncomfortable on so many levels. That's so weird. But this was, this was a normative thing. So you imagine Jesus laying on his side at this table, eating food, talking shop about current events and theology and politics with this Pharisee and his dignified guests and maybe some other traveling rabbis. And all these people gathered around, sitting, standing, kneeling, listening to them talk. This is the scene, and then we meet this woman. And so this woman wanders in. She's allowed to, it's normative. And she has her flask of ointment, and she makes her way to Jesus' feet. Right? She's close to Jesus. There's, there's a, a Christian author, her name is uh, Liz Higgs. 
she, she wrote a book called The Bad Girls of the Bible, which pretty much tells you everything you know about these things. <laughs> uh, she says this of this woman. Her sins weren't listed in detail because they didn't need to be. The world's oldest profession hardly requires a job description. See, what we can easily miss reading this is that Luke is delicately informing us this woman is a prostitute. The language that is used here is evocative of that. She is a woman of the city. She is a notable sinner. She has walked into this place carrying her bottle of perfume. This was uh, the common way for a Greek <coughs> prostitute to advertise herself is by spritzing her perfume as she, as she walks around. And so this woman is a woman who, 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 not to be crass, she sells her femininity and her intimacy and her sexuality for money. She's known. She wanders in. She makes her way to the feet of Jesus in this large crowd at this public event. And as she's standing there, we have no clue what's being said or what's being discussed, but we know that this woman starts weeping. And, and she's not just, like, crying. She's weeping. I want you to imagine the kind of sobbing that produces enough tears that Jesus is noticing his feet getting wet. While everyone around them is engaged in this normal social institution, this public night out, right? This is date night for Eli and his wife out of the woodshop to go hear the rabbis talk while they eat. This prostitute is standing at the foot of this traveling rabbi, weeping onto his feet. And then she kneels down, and she takes her hair and begins to wipe the tears off his feet. Now, I don't, I don't want to overstate this, but I don't think I can. This is entirely scandalous and inappropriate. The number one way a Greek prostitute would identify herself was simply by unbraiding her hair, letting her hair fall loose. And to take her hair and to wipe it across his feet would have been seen as such an inappropriately erotic expression that there are, like, I, I can't, like, give an analog to it and not just be inappropriate in this space. This is entirely, entirely Awkward, painful, inappropriate for everyone. This woman is sobbing over the feet of Jesus, wiping his feet dry with her hair and taking her perfume, her advertisement of her body, and anointing his feet and rubbing them. Really awkward. And Jesus is just still like, yes, well, anyway, the Greeks, right? The scene. The scene is, is painful to take in. Rosaria Butterfield is, is a, a Christian author, and in her book, The Gospel Comes to the House Key, she notes something I think is really key to us engaging in this text. She says, This woman's understanding of intimacy has been so distorted and broken by her experience of sin and the curse in this world that she engages Jesus in the only way she knows how to be. And it's entirely inappropriate. And yet, look at Jesus' response. 
sits and quietly allows her to love him. And look at Simon's response, right? The, the Pharisee immediately is just like, what the heck? If this guy was anything I've heard about him, then he would know who this is. He would know what kind of woman this is. He would not allow this. This is ludicrous. Says he thinks to himself. And Jesus responds with this, this beautiful little parable, right? And we're going to come back to this in a minute, but but I love, this is the sort of parable that just makes me love Jesus' teaching. He gives this little parable about two debtors who, who can't pay back, and they're both forgiven, and he asks the question, who, who would love the, the, the business person who forgave them more? And Simon's response is, well, I suppose the one who was forgiven the bigger debt. He's like, exactly, exactly. And I don't want to point this out to us. But Jesus says, you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with her ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Do you see this woman? I don't know if there have been many more loaded questions in the scripture than this one. Of course Simon sees this woman. Everyone in the room sees this woman. She is making a spectacle of herself and of Jesus and of this entire party. Of course he sees her. But of course, he doesn't see her. He sees a sinner. He sees a prostitute. He sees a spectacle and an embarrassment. He sees an imposition on him and his party. And so Jesus, I love this, essentially engages all of her inappropriate behavior. Are you asking me if I've experienced the inappropriate behavior? Yeah. Yeah, I have. I'm right here. But let me tell you something. You didn't give me the common decency of, of washing my feet when I came to your house. And she's been washing my feet this whole time. You didn't give me the normal greeting of appear to appear and, and kiss me and acknowledge that I entered your house. She hasn't stopped kissing me since she got here. You have not honored me as a rabbi and anointed my head with oil as you would do with any other rabbi who comes to your house for public discourse. She's anointed me. He essentially says to Simon, Simon, this woman just lost me more than it may be inappropriate and awkward, painful, everyone involved, but man, she just loves me more than you do. She even puts Simon in a position where he has to admit she's done some really terrible stuff. So yeah, she loves her gracious, loving Savior a lot, as best she knows how. Best she knows how. 
there is something there. You see, this Pharisee saw this woman, and instead of seeing this woman, he saw a prostitute and a sinner. And when Jesus saw this woman, he saw his daughter, he saw his creation stamp with the image, he saw the love of his life, he saw one of his favorite kids of all of his. He invited her to love how she did her. Well, but I hope, I hope that you see in that the love of our Savior for his people. Because let me tell you how I tend to read this text. I tend to read this text and read that part and get choked up and think, wow. Jesus is so loving. He saw through all the junk that the sinful, broken world had poured onto this woman. He saw his daughter made in his image. He saw he saw who he had called her to be. He saw her imperfection and eternity. He just saw that, and that's so powerful because I don't do that. But let me tell you who else Jesus saw because I tend to read it. And see that and marvel at the beauty of it. And then I think about Simon and I go, what a jerk. What a scumbag. How could you be so self-righteous and so self-centered and so caught up in the moment of your stupid party that you miss this moment? And yet Jesus, Jesus not only sees the woman, Jesus sees Simon. And when Jesus gives the parable, he points out that both people are debtors who can't pay their debt. And, and Jesus graciously, graciously gives Simon the benefit of the doubt, who sees himself as a righteous person and sees this woman as a piece of garbage sinner. Jesus graciously points out to him, well, you're a debtor too. And you can't pay your debt either. And you love me a lot less. You see, when Jesus saw Simon, he saw his son. He saw his creation stamped with his image. He saw the love of his life. He saw one of his favorite things in the universe. He saw Simon. Saw the woman. And yet, one of those two people walked away from lunch, washed in the blood of Jesus and forgiven of sin. And the other did not. Man. What we see in Jesus is this intense, piercing, straight through the muck, the mire, and the death. Gaze upon his creation. What we see in Jesus is this laser focus on his precious creation. The difference is not in how Jesus engages. He engages Simon right where he's at and he engages the woman right where she's at. The difference is in how they respond to Jesus. The difference is in 
how they view themselves and their relationship to him. Simon sees Jesus as a spectacle, as a rabbi, as the potential of an interesting afternoon of conversation. Not worth his time to anoint or grieve. The woman sees Jesus from the perspective of her brokenness over her sin, her need of safety, her need of forgiveness. And to her, Jesus says, to a faith has saved I hope, I hope you don't like need me to push you through this a little more. I hope the Spirit is speaking to us in this. Beloved, this is how our Jesus meets us. He meets us right where we're at. He meets us exactly as we are. In our brokenness, in our death, our sin, our misunderstanding of he meets us in the midst of our rebellion and self-righteousness and our flagrant disregard for his law. He meets us in the midst of our sin. And he invites us to love him. To love him how we know how. I can't express that enough. How, how scandalous it is that Jesus allows this woman to engage him this way publicly. It makes a ton of sense why just a few sentences before this text, Jesus himself says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus engages this woman with such grace that he is guilty of the accusation of friend of sinners. But it's an accurate understanding of his ministry. If he befriends sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. Beloved, this is us. We are all in the same boat. We are we are all in in a debt we cannot pay. By the grace of God grace of God. We owe that debt to a gracious and loving God. He meets us in our death and our sin. <coughs> I've talked a couple times this month about Francis Schaeffer and his image of, of total depravity where he talks about sinful broken humans as glorious ruins, right? These things that are, that are made precious and, and unique and yet are so utterly destroyed they can't be used for their intended purpose, right? I love, I want to expound on that image. There's a pastor in Texas named, named John Burke. He's a pastor of a church called Gateway Church in Austin. And he expands on that image of Francis Schaeffer. He talks about, he talks about Christians as a, as a painting, right? And then kind of the image is imagine, imagine you go to an art museum and you see some one-of-a-kind painting. You see Peter's Confession of Christ or, or, or the Mona Lisa or whatever it is. And you go to the museum and you see that painting and you marvel at the, 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 the artistry of it and the intricacy of it and the beauty of it and the transcendent, all the different stuff. And you leave and you go, man, I want to go see that painting again. And you go back and as you're entering the museum, you see that painting sticking out of the trash can. And you're like, what the heck? And so you go and you grab it and 
The frame is cracked and broken, and the canvas is torn, and is covered in crusted over garbage juice and mud, and unrecognizable, and yet it is this painting. What do you do in that moment? Would you be like, dang, that does belong in the garbage? You toss it back in, of course not. Of course not. You would panic. You would freak out. You would run to the desk and go, I need the museum employee. What do we do about this? You would hand it over to art restorationists who would carefully labor over the painting, doing their best to restore and preserve it, right? Because it's a one of a kind painting. The idea is, is simply this guy. Sin could not have killed humanity better than it did. Could Sin, the curse, has destroyed what God made for Ruined. Ruined. Yet, yet, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, came into this world and saw his creation. Precious but ruined. And he saw through the crusted up garbage Jews, and through the ruin, and through the destruction, and he saw his name. And he saw what he made them for. And he said, I will restore this. I will recreate this. I will fix what has been ruined. This is our Jesus. This is how he has engaged us. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in the first verse. You who were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich and merciful, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of your works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared before him, that we should walk in that. Beloved, sin cannot kill something dead enough that Jesus can't resurrect it. So why would we dare 
Jerusalem to look at the death and sin upon human beings around us and identify them by that sin. Why would we dare to look at our neighbors and co-workers and family and, and fellow citizens and terrorists and criminals and murderers and abusers and identify them by their sin? We all walked in the ways of this world according to the passions of our flesh and were dead as dead could possibly be. Christ is resurrected. By his grace, he's made us new. He has recreated life where death reigned. He has drawn us out of the kingdom of darkness and placed us in the kingdom of light. Beloved, there is no one so dead that Jesus cannot resurrect them. Why would we dare ignore that? Beloved, I ask, and this is where we will end, as you engage this world, as you, as you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, as you engage the reality that left unto yourself, you are dead and destroyed, but through Christ you are alive and well. As you process that reality of your own helplessness and dependence on the love and mercy of Jesus, how do you do your neighbor? How do you invite your neighbor? How do you love your neighbor? How do you see it? Or maybe we should just ask the same question to you today. Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see sin? Do you see the curse? You see their wrong and their injustice. Do you see that? Ruined. Precious and destroyed. In desperate need of master resurrection. Jesus looked at the world around him and he just said, Come. Exactly as you are. Engage me exactly as you know how. Love me the best way you can. I'll meet you in that. Beloved, Jesus already condescended from being the eternal God to being a human. It wasn't that much of a step further for him to condescend down a little lower and hang out with a prostitute or tax collector. Are we so high and noble that we won't stoop down next to our Jesus and love those who he loves and welcome those who he loves and invite those who he invites? Pray for those who he prays. Pursue those he pursues. Serve those he serves. Are we so We're so stuck in ourselves. That seems unreasonable. We're so self-righteous that we can convince ourselves that that's somehow ungodly. Beloved, may it not be so. 
May we kneel alongside our Jesus and proclaim to the world, come as you are. There is life to be found. There is freedom to be found. There is joy to be found. His name is Jesus. Come as you are. He belongs to you. I was dead. If now I'm not, look. Father, may this be us. The communion tables are open. If you need to pray, if someone come find a pastor, if you need to pray over our church, just come up and do it. We're going to take a few minutes and engage this. And then we'll end our time. <coughs> the space is for you, church. Meet with God. So do what you need to do. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.